New Thinking Aloud, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring Swedish contributions to esoteric thought and culture. My guest is James Tunney, a Renaissance man, a poet, an artist, a scholar, an attorney. He is the author of The Mystery of the Trapped Light, Mystical Thoughts in the Dark Age of Scientism, and also The Mystical Accord, Sutras to Suit Our Times, Lines for Spiritual Evolution. He's also written two dystopian novels, Blue Lies September and Ireland, I Don't Recognize Who She Is. James is an Irishman living in Gothenburg, Sweden, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, James. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. Uh, Thank you very much. Great to see you, Jeff. We're talking on Skype, which is a Swedish system. And uh, we're probably on Ericsson, and you want to get on Spotify, <laughs> I joke, which is another Swedish company, and IKEA shelves behind me. So some people think they're taking over the world. Well, Sweden is a fascinating country. It's a, a socialist country, and we think of it as very secular, yet, like practically every country in Europe, it has a deep mystical tradition going back in its past. Um, perhaps I'll make a few general comments about the, the Swedish context, and then we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the esoteric tradition. Um, Sweden is a land, in Ireland they say, Cade Mila Falcha, which is 100,000 welcomes. And in Sweden, there's nearly 100,000 lakes in Sweden. So it's, it's quite has been quite defined by its geography in some sense, a very long country with a lot of forest and a lot of wood, and that has been very significant, and of course, relatively cold winters, uh, which which have had an impact. Uh, and the forest, for example, is very important in, in the Swedish psyche and, and the wood, and it's also very rich in natural resources. Uh, it always has been, and associated with that richness in natural resources, there has been a great familiarity with metallurgy, and associated with that, perhaps uh, alchemy, uh, and that has been important in relation to the growth of Sweden historically. Uh, in relation to, for example, King Gustav uh, Adolphus and his military successes in the various wars at the time of the Thirty Years' War, uh, metal was important, and their use of metal in relation to producing cannons and things like that. Uh, and up till today, uh, some of the natural resources. Are very significant. If you look at the table of elements, for example, a lot of the elements were discovered in Sweden by, by Swedish chemists, and certain things like rare earths are are, are plentiful relatively uh, in, in Sweden. And as, as we see perhaps a world digital currency in the future, perhaps related to rare earths uh, coming, cl- coming soon, uh, Sweden again will find itself perhaps a player in those dimensions. And associated with that, uh, in the 20th century, when it became very social democratic uh, and industry uh, became important, it was significant in relation to export of iron ore as a neutral country. It supplied both Germany and, and the Allies. Uh, and 
in the in those contexts there's a spillover effect so we see a certain tradition of alchemy for example we see a a priest after the time of of the reformation hans pauli was his name and he was brought in to uh, to apply some magic to improve the production of a silver mine because it was believed it was necessary to uh, get rid of evil spirits that were in the mine uh, and there there is a of course the the legends associated with Sweden going back to the the Norse gods and Odin and Freya and Frey uh, and a whole stream uh, and tradition through the Vikings through the rune system the runic system which is quite significant and also when you look at the prehistoric the prehistoric megalithic sites in Sweden there's quite a lot of them consistent with the development around the western seaboard of Europe which people kind of forget about that there was this very old megalithic culture in 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 these parts of the world as well uh, and cultures uh, and and there are pictures and uh, and hieroglyphs etc that that are there and petroglyphs that are there still so there's a, there's a quite quite a a big history and from there we, well we have the the Swedish royal family has been significant in this in this story and they've been quite interested in the esoteric arts if we look at Gustav the third for example uh, in in the 18th century we see that he has a lot of contact with people doing esoteric things for example he used to go in disguise to a woman called Mamsell Arvidsson in Stockholm and he consulted her about various things and according to the reports which seem quite quite genuine she she warned him about a, that there was a conspiracy against him and she warned him that she, she would see a, a figure on his way home that night who would be a threat to him so he was uh, he was assassinated a few years after in 1792 at the opera uh, and she she had anticipated now i know you don't believe in conspiracies and some of your guests don't believe that there are conspiracies but there were plenty of conspiracies against him and not only that but he was engaged with an individual called uh, bjorn rom who participated and demonstrated conjuring in, in the way that we talked about and and brought him to and others to an old church where he performed conjuring feats although he was exposed as, as a, a charlatan but we have this openness to explore in the royal family to explore these things and his brother the duke charles who later became came uh, carl the the third was very very interested uh, in magic and magical things and when his brother was was not in sweden at one stage there was another man called ulfenklau who uh who brought the the duke at the time to dig for treasure in Ostalongathan in, in the middle of Stockholm and perform some other ceremonies. So at, at a certain stage in the royal family, there were two royals who had their own magic circles, and the the duke had his his own room where he performed ceremonial magic, and there are recordings or descriptions of of what they did or, or what it looked like and he was very active in, in that context so they exposed themselves to 
the whole gamut of esoteric arts, and they were involved in Freemasonry, but the, the spirit seems to be a kind of very open, exploratory context, and certainly... Uh, certainly, Gustav the Third was was no he wasn't duped easily, so he he seemed to be just looking at and of course if it could give some some benefit to him, it's kind of understandable why they would look for any possibilities. So despite the fact that it, today it has changed that Swedish people are often described as the most secular people in the world, that there is not much openness to. Uh, to spirituality, in some senses, in the traditional sense, perhaps they may be open to to Oriental uh, practices, big interest in yoga and tantra and various things. They're quite open in that sense. Uh, early adopters. It's a culture where people are very focused on on the body, on 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 physicality, on material things, and the whole political system is quite materialist in the sense of its conception of the individual, but it's the conception of a, a healthy a healthy physical body in a society that functions in a successful material way. Isn't there an official Swedish Christian church? There is a, a Swedish church which was established, which is, is predominantly, uh, which, which is a Lutheran church. And this was established at the time of the Reformation. But the interesting thing about this established church is that the everyone used to be compelled to, to join it and those restrictions have been reduced so it's not an established church any longer but still there's a kind of degree of inertia that people are still attached to it but the numbers are quite declining but in independent of, of the declining numbers there is an interesting factor which is revealed by a succession of surveys over the years that most people in the church don't believe in god that it's quite it's quite interesting. So uh, that that seems strange. And then if you look at the people that are pra practicing uh, in in that uh, context, it's it seems to be a quite a quite small number. And there is a book. I don't I don't think it's available in in English. There's a lot of interesting books in Swedish that don't seem to be available uh, in English, to my knowledge. I, I can check that. But there's a book called. Sexty Otte Shirkan, which means the 68 church, which explains about the influence of Marxism uh, at the time uh, in, in 68, similar to the way that it happened in relation to liberation theology in South America. But it seems to have been more successful influence here. So uh, I think the the Swedish church in particular, um, if we look, if you look at the figures, it would give you, uh, it would exaggerate the amount or the commitment to Christianity, I believe. I, I believe that the figures of practicing Christ, Christians is, is a lot smaller. Now, certainly there are other churches, free churches, as, as they're called, and the Catholic Church, although it, it the first cardinal since the Reformation uh, was appointed a few years ago, and he's a very nice man. I met him because he came to two of my exhibitions. <laughs> so uh, very, very, we had some interesting conversations about the nature of grace, etc. But the Swedish church is growing, or the, the, the Catholic church is growing a little, but the numbers are, are very, very small. Uh, and uh, Islam ha has grown in recent years. So the, relative, the nature of the composition is quite difficult to judge because the official figures are, are, are not clear. But uh, I, I would say that the, the, to make a generalization, uh, in spirituality and metaphysics are not a big preoccupation because Swedish people are very physically active. Uh, 
they're very they, they they're very busy engaged very busy in in community and clubs uh, and there doesn't seem to be uh, the same or uh, commitments to broad spirituality that's a massive generalization i know a lot of people will criticize that but that that's my broad brush uh, idea of it you know, one of the impressions I've had of Swedish culture, and I, I think it's probably based on having watched a lot of Bergman films, is, is that because it's so far to the north, it gets very dark during the winter months and that there's more depression. The, the Swedes seem to have sort of a, a dour personality, frankly. You're setting me up for a fall here, Jeffrey. Um, I would, uh, I would say, yes, it, it would make a, again a generalization that um, the if uh, coming from say Scotland or Ireland, uh, from the Celtic countries or, or, or Spain where I lived in, there are certainly uh, different dispositions. When you live in a climate which is very very tough, uh, it can have an impact. Uh, but of course, Swedish people are more influenced by international media, so the generalizations that one would have made a few years ago are changing. And then the, the, the country is quite multicultural now. So again, the generalizations are getting more difficult. Uh, a, a bigger factor may be the distribution of people. Because if you think about a place like uh, Hong Kong, and you have, and I find that the people in Hong Kong very nice. Uh, my experience, our experiences there was fantastic. I really, really enjoyed the people of Hong Kong. But because the people in Hong Kong have to live in a very concentrated area, they have to be good at getting on with each other. But when people are distributed and they don't get the opportunity to engage with each other uh, to a certain extent, that, that can have an influence. And of course, we have to remember that there are different groups of people that uh, can come into Sweden, that we have the this area or the, the, the southern central part of Sweden was inhabited by various tribes, often associated with the Goths or the Gietz, and they were a people, or the peoples there um, were, were well known in different contexts. The, the story Beowulf is associated with that part of the country, and in the Baltic, on, on the east coast of Sweden, you have Gotland, and Gotland was very significant itself, uh, sometimes regarded as an independent uh, merchant republic, but it had connections with Russia, with Ukraine, with Byzantium, and there were very real connections. And the Vikings traveled down through the, the rivers to these cities, and there was trade and influence, uh, influence there. And of course, in the north, we have the Sami people, the indigenous people, who are part of a kind of circumpolar northern uh, people who come from a different finno ugaric base, uh, I, I believe, uh, and from from a northern uh, connection, and they would be a traditional society with shamanism, with with the reindeer herding. Uh, so it gets difficult to make generalizations. And of course, up the north, we you have strange phenomena like the the midnight sun, which which is can be very disorientating. But in in another factor is that in winter, if it does snow. You do get a, a lot of lovely blue skies and, and revivifying cold, and the color, the spectrum seems to change. You get a lot more, for an artist, you'd see a lot more orange and pinks in the sky. So there's swings and roundabouts, but uh, so it may be difficult to make generalizations. But the, 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 yes, it's true that they're, they're a bit quiet 
uh, and they they sit back a bit, so they're not too interested in small talk, for example. That's that's a thing that has been noted. In fact, there was a woman in Sweden who gave cl- classes on small talk because she, when she was in America, she realized that you had to talk to people in order to do business. So there's there's some truth in what you say. And another factor I think most people don't appreciate is the influence of Nordic culture today. For for example, the days of the week, Wotan, Wednesday, Thor, Thursday, Freya, Friday. The days of the week are named for the ancient deities of the Nordic culture. Yeah, we have we have to remember that there's a there was a big influence, a big movement of people between the Nordic countries and Britain and Ireland with the Vikings. And before that, before when there was land connections, the people were moving around before that, when there was lost lands of Doggerland connecting uh, Britain and the continent. And uh, there was always people moving. There was always trade in fur and amber and uh, people traveling in boats and the Vikings traveling perhaps with their sunstone using light to travel to to other other contexts. So they were they were quite influential for the for the relative numbers and we have to uh, we have to see a, a context where there was a lot more trading influences between the the places yeah. and it said that the vikings settled in russia and, and became the rulers of the russian people i think uh, the vikings were called the rus who went to into russia that's right the, the, there's a lot of you, you get different opinions uh, but there does seem to be a great uh, connection between the people from Gotland and from from south south and central Sweden, the Goths, and uh, Ukraine and Russia, and there is some evidence that they were uh, the people that were described as Rus from the start. But again, loads of people will contradict that. But it indicates that there were different uh, connections and different trade routes going on, and there are some indications of connections connections with the arab world going back hundred, uh, hundreds of years and uh, a, a jewish influence and it links with the khazar uh, people and so, so so it is quite interesting and i suppose we have to mention the vikings were particularly known as warriors they were you get you get a lot of different views these days because there are people that want to paint them as traders who come over knocking on the door selling fish or something but yes they were they were raiders other people say well there was different rules that came over and they used to engage in battle under similar rules but if you look back if you look back on the west coast of ireland the stories are there uh, of oh you know the, the seas are rough tonight so we'll be able to sleep quietly and not fear the norwegians coming in their boats and I was down in Mayo one time, and there was a man explaining that he had found a souterrain, which they believed were, was used by people to hide when the Vikings were coming. So the Vikings, of course, uh, when they came uh, in the 8th century and 9th century to Ireland, attacked the the, uh, the monasteries, and, and, and those histories are there in Lindisfarne in Britain. So uh, they were certainly warlike. Uh, they took slaves as well. Um, so uh, uh, the, the effort to just paint them as a purely trading uh, uh, entity is, is is mistaken, and, and there were different times. Uh, they were obviously with so much access to, well, to the Baltic and to, to lakes. They had great experience of boat building. They had the, the the trees, the oak, whatever, to make their their boats. They were very skilled technicians, 
and they were able to take advantage of that to uh, engage as other people, as every other people did around the world. So, I do recall because I've had some experience with the Viking Ocean Cruise Line. Uh, they have in their large ocean-going ships tapestries that were created after the Battle of Hastings in 1066 AD, in which the Normans conquered Britain. And uh, they point out they're very quick to point out, in fact, that uh, the both sides of that battle were essentially in the Viking tradition, using Viking implements of war. Well, Norman, yes, and Norman refers to the uh, North and Norse who had settled in that area because they, of course, they had, they had raided Paris and they'd come down to the French rivers as well. So, the idea is that the, the Normans who occupied that part of, of France were from the Northlands as well. And of course, when they were attacking Britain, they were attacking uh, areas which had been largely ruled by Danes as well as, uh, as Anglo-Saxons. And you had the Dane law area uh, in Britain. So there's a lot of truth in that. Although I've been quite interested in recent years of trying to uh, see to what extent the Normans were uh, or had Roman connections. I think there are more Roman connections there than than uh, we think, and it may explain some of their particular interests in law and and, and military systems. So, uh, but that's true, basically true. Yeah. That to get into the esoteric culture of Sweden, pretty much. People associate Swedenborg with Sweden because of his name. I mean, the name of the country is part of his name. But I gather that the irony is that Swedenborg, who was a great mystic, had a greater influence outside of Sweden than within it. You're absolutely right. That accords with, with my experience. He, When his family were nobles, his name was Sveberg, I think, uh, initially, or Sveborg. And then they were ennobled and became Swedenborg. But uh, it's absolutely true, in my view, that he is known. And when I asked people initially about uh, years ago, when I got interested in the figure, um, what do you think about Swedenborg? Or most, a lot of people never heard of Swedenborg. And there are particular reasons for that. I, I'd associated with the movement towards a very material culture, which is leaving behind a lot of its, you know, to make a generalization, a lot uh, of, of its heritage. But Swedenborg is a fascinating figure, and, and you have discussed him with Gary Lockman before, so I won't go over, I won't go over the, the main details. Uh, people can look at that video. But, uh, so he's born in 1688, and his family were quite well-to-do, and he begins, he's a very talented man, who becomes very accomplished in metallurgy and engineering, who works in the Swedish mines as, as an assessor. Uh, he's very good technically. He begins to study the body, the brain, to try and understand how everything worked. He was a kind of uh, polymath. And uh, he worked within uh, administrative contexts in Sweden, he traveled around on a number of excursions uh, around Europe. He learned of people. He had very, very good connections. People say that was because he was in the secret societies and had, had good connections as a result of that. But that doesn't take away from his accomplishments. He 
he designed a flying machine, which I think is in the Smithsonian Institute. I don't know if it ever flew, but uh, or if it can fly. But he was interested in designing new things. A machine gun, for example, another thing he supposedly designed. Uh, uh, so he was thinking about all the very creative individual before he began to commit himself uh, to, to his mystic path, which which didn't come till a lot later when he was in his fifties when he had a mystical experience. When, well, he describes it as the creator, as God, as far as I understand it. Sometimes it's Jesus, but when he's in London and God appears in the corner and tells him that he's eating too much and begins to converse with him. And from there, uh, he begins to, uh, he, he begins to be able to travel to, to heaven, to the various heavens. And he's probably the person who has described the afterlife as in whatever form, uh, in the most comprehensive way ever done. So he explains the afterlife, the different systems, um, and, and suggests that he, he is being there. He explains that the, the greatest message that he got was that people were not to interpret the Bible literally. And this is a very interesting aspect. So when you look at his descriptions of the Bible, the book of Genesis, it's a spiritual interpretation. So the the seven days of creation don't actually mean the seven days of creation. So there's a whole different number of layers. And this is consistent with the uh, the idea of mystics in the, in the Judaic tradition, where they say that the worst interpretation of the sacred texts are the literal translations. They're dark translations. You have to get at a deeper meaning, which is, is important in relation to people who want to use sacred texts literally to achieve purposes that are inconsistent with the creative and compassionate spirit of these documents. It's very, very important. But he championed this idea of mystical experience of the individual, that the individual had access to these worlds and the individual could move between them. So he developed a whole spectrum of theories based on light and of angels to explain to people what happens afterwards and how this uh, informs our life. Now, if you look at what happens to uh, to him afterwards internationally we know that he had a big influence in London on Blake and then on the American transcendentalists on Emerson and on William James's father Henry James which I think informed a big part of uh, William James's worldview whereby he could balance the scientific radical empirical uh, empiricist method with some openness to mystical experience. I think that's a direct connection from Swedenborg. Um, so uh, if you look in Sweden, quite early on, from the start, there was a hostility towards uh, Swedenborg. And this was manifest in the 1790s when uh, the, some of his followers or people that were open to him, like August Nordenhold, who was, a, who, who was very interesting writing about light and the nature of light and had been in London, uh, he, for example, and other people like Silver Silverhjelm were interested in other things such as mesmerism. And Silverhjelm had met Mesmer when he had gone on, on a tour. Uh, he was a, had been a general in the Swedish army, I think. And he, he'd been to Paris and he'd brought back ideas from mesmerism. And he tried to, he set up shop in, in, the, in Stockholm in the old town, which is an island, uh, in the uh, where the palace is, right in the centre of Stockholm, he set up 
uh, mesmerist or hypnotic kind of therapy, similar to the way Mesmer did it with metal. Now, so this was in the 1780s. By then, in Paris, people like Benjamin Franklin had studied mesmerism and concluded that it wasn't an electromagnetic effect, it was something in the mind. So they seemed to know that this was a mental effect. So we know today that the placebo effect is very, very important, and the power of suggestion is very, very important. So there were records of people who had, have seemed to be independent as far as I can see, who had witnessed people coming to, uh, to these sessions and be, uh, having been cured. But the rationalists, uh, sometimes informed by the Lutheran tradition, but more, more probably Enlightenment scientific figures didn't like this. And they, 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 they had a campaign of vilification such that this mesmerism stroke Swedenborgian experiment uh, was, uh, was ended. Uh, so we see an early kind of reaction against some of these ideas. But one figure that he did have a, a big influence on in Sweden was Strindberg. Uh, and Strindberg is, is a very important figure. I think we should talk about him some other time because he's such an important figure. But Strindberg, for people that are not familiar with him, August Strindberg, was I, I came across him first as a painter. He, he was a, a very interesting painter ahead of his time. Uh, he was also a, a novelist. He wrote a book called The Red Room, which was very influential, not least on Joyce, uh, in my view. Uh, it is it, set in Stockholm again in, in this area. Uh, he, was, he was a master playwright that influenced everyone from Eugene O'Neill to filmmakers to uh, like Jodorowsky uh, and the techniques in his plays were based on his his philosophical uh, evolution for example he began to say well time and space doesn't exist therefore i can utilize the technique as if time and space is not chronological so in plays like the ghost sonata and the dream play, drum spelet in particular, he, he, he applied these techniques in his plays and in, it was very, very, very influential. But he was also, uh, he was also connected internationally. He went to Berlin where he was friends with Edward Munch and another man who described himself as a Satanist, uh, Stanislaw Szybyszewski in Berlin. They, they, they formed, he was exploring and both Munch and Strindberg were exploring uh, ideas of anti-Christianism of what happens after Darwin has, uh, had come along and, and changed the world. And they were tending towards a kind of existential, occult viewpoint at that stage. And Munch was very, very uh, interested in, in Nietzsche. And Nietzsche and Strindberg corresponded. Now, Strindberg moved on from Nietzsche and he, he changed his view on him because there was a general, in the zeitgeist, there was a general, uh, there was a general anti-Christianism, anti-Judeo-Christianism uh, at the time. But Strindberg moved on. It's interesting as well that another, another family associated with Sweden, of course, is the Nobel family and the Nobel Prize and the paradox of developing dynamite and nitroglycerine and being you know for peaceful purposes uh, but also there's a bit of a, a paradox there that, in that one of the nobel brothers uh was 
design of the first oil tanker, which was designed in, in, in Gothenburg. And that, before, uh, before Nietzsche wrote uh, was called the Zoroaster. So Zoroaster was knocking around. And it was called Zoroaster because the, it was intended to bring oil from Azerbaijan and Baku and places where there was flames associated with the oil field and Zoroaster was associated with that. And, uh, so that's another interesting connection. But Strindberg moves on to Paris and in 1896 he starts a series. i just show you this, this, the size of these diaries. There are a number of these diaries uh, called the Occult Diaries that he started, which are very famous. People They've, they've been quite influential on their own. And he also wrote a book, Inferno, and that describes his experiments with alchemy and his experiments when he, he was trying to be a scientist, but he was trying to be an alchemist as well. And that affected him. He was going through another breakdown, just as kind of Swedenborg uh, had done before his mystical experience. And some people believe he had some kind of psychotic, he, he was becoming psychotic, but it's that characteristic breakdown at the base before a mystical experience com comes on. And then he begin, the person that came to him was Swedenborg. He, be he became open to Swedenborg and he changed direction. And he changed direction, again, like the left hand, right hand path that we talked about. He changed direction back and, and the figures that influenced him thereafter were, was uh, um, Swedenborg, Shakespeare, Goethe, and he became more open to religion because what he, he said, which is very interesting from his experience, he said that if you abandon all connection to positive higher forces, you become open to spiritual powers that will attack you. So he was, he was convinced that by abandoning commitment to a higher ideal, that you became prey to psychic and spiritual unseen forces. And the, the very first page on this book uh, as well says that if you want to engage with the unseen, you first have to look at the, the seen world with, with, with open eyes. So the, uh, he, he is a figure that was heavily influenced uh, by Swedenborg. Now, and and uh, Strindberg was a big influence on Bergman. We can see the influence of, of Strindberg directly on Bergman. He, he was the one that gave that occult dimension to certain of his films because he employed the techniques he had seen in Strindberg. He had, of course, uh, performed or, or, or organized the plays and directed the plays. And in fact, I've been communicating with one of your viewers who who worked with Strindberg, which is very interesting, and, and she has been sharing some insights from her experience of, of those characters. Uh, Annalie. You mean worked with Bergman? With Bergman, yeah, in the, in the theatre, and Max von Sydow and all these figures. So she's been informing me a bit of, and we, we've discussed certain films. But the three films uh, in particular that uh, where Bergman looks at certain esoteric dimensions, of course, the, uh, that Kunde in that the seventh seal is the most significant and is regarded as one of the great films of all time by certain people. Uh, and that has, that's certainly an exploration of the nature of death, uh, which, which is very, very interesting. We also have Smultron Stellet or Wild Strawberries. And in the film Wild Strawberries, there are certain scenes, scenes which are set in Stockholm and Gamla Stan in the old town. Uh, and, uh, 
if you understand that Strindberg had been saying that time and space don't exist, you understand how Bergman employed that idea, taking it directly from certain of uh, Strindberg's plays, Bergman took it and applied it in a cinematic context and was therefore very, very uh, influential. And another film which is very, very interesting is a film in Swedish, it's called Ansiktet, which means the face, but uh, in English it's called The Magician, which is a film. Both These films came 57, 58, as far as I remember, and in Ansichtet, with Max von Sydow, beautifully shot film, I think it was Gunnar Fischer was the cinematographer, uh, Bergman used two very good cinematographers that gave that look and feel to his film often. And uh, in the, 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 the Ansichtet, it's called The Magician in English, and it was based on or inspired by a story by G.K. Chesterton. And G.K. Chesterton had written uh, The Magician, The Tragedy, uh, I, th I think it was called, uh, and uh, he had also written other stories such as The Diabolist and explored the dark dimension before he changed to uh, Catholicism. I wonder about the influence of theosophy and anthroposophy. I mean, anthroposophy in particular became a big European movement, and I imagine it would have had inroads in the Swedish culture. It did. Uh, that, that, that's right. Again, in some of these contexts, the Swedes are early adapters. They get in quite quickly. For example, if we take in the telephone context, again, Ericsson are probably helping us with this broadcast, but Ericsson was an inventor who, who, who designed the telephone after reverse engineering the original uh, telephone that had a patent, but there was no patent in Sweden. So they, he was able to develop it in that, in that context. So they, they are early adopters. And theosophy uh, is very, very important. We must remember, I think we have to locate uh, uh, back a little, that Swedenborgian, uh, Swedenborgianism was seen as theosophy and described as theosophy. So in, in many senses, what came afterwards was following on from those theosophical ideas. And another figure, before we, we develop that point, associated with Swedenborg, was uh, Linnaeus, Carl von Linné, the great, the great taxonomist. Now, a, an interesting point is that they were related. Swedenborg and Linnaeus were related to each other. And Swedenborg was appointed to the Swedish Academy of Science by uh, Linnaeus. Now, Linnaeus believed in God, but he believed that God manifested himself in the order around and that's why he wanted to chart every known living species and it is from him that we have homo sapiens and the idea of uh, who we are and the idea of the great taxonomy um, and it's interesting that when darwin presented his paper on natural selection in 1858 now people forget that there was two papers presented in parallel, that there was Darwin's paper and there was Wallace, because the theory of evolution was written by two, uh, two, different, two different people. The difference, of course, was that Wallace believed that there had been a spiritual intervention. If we had followed the Wallace idea of evolution, we probably more akin with the stream that comes from Swedenborg to William James. It's quite interesting. But... The significant thing is that those two papers were presented at the Linnaean Society in London. So, in many ways, 
the Darwin theory of evolution was trying to fit in and follow on from the classifications that Linnaeus had made. So it was a very, very uh, significant uh, impact. And there were other people around in the Academy of Science at the the time, like Celsius, for example, who gives us the the, the thermometer readings and and the scale. And Celsius and and, and Swedenborg had... had, uh, Disputes. Celsius was pointed out errors that Swedenborg had made, but so that theosophical tradition is there, in contradistinction to the more to, to other ideas of natural theology that Linnaeus tried to develop. But it doesn't seem that Linnaeus was very interested in the afterlife in the way that Swedenborg was interested. So when Theosophy comes along, you, you know, and you've talked in many of your, your your talks about Blavatsky and where it came from in, in that form. But it came into Sweden quite early and began to influence uh, certain of the the painters there, and uh, in particular. And the ideas of spiritism and spiritualism had a bigger impact uh, in Stockholm. And if we look at the 1890s, the 1890s was a critical period. For example, in the 1890s in uh, in Stockholm, in the mid 1890s, we have Edward Munch exhibiting 50 paintings or so I, he didn't sell any of them but uh, he was exhibiting his painting he's norwegian but he exhibiting his painting the scream for example was what was exhibited in stockholm at that period we also have hilma of clint which we can talk about who is a theosophist who begins to engage in seances with uh, de femme another they call themselves the five uh, and other bodies, the Edelweiss Verbundet, for example. So she begins to operate in 1896 to 1906 in seances because of her theosophical background. And we also have Alistair Crowley coming and having his first mystical experience in the, 18, in the mid-1890s at the Grand Hotel in Stockholm. So again, we can see very, very heavy uh, international forces because of the great interest uh, of people particularly at the higher levels i mean there, there is the the lower levels there is the folk magic there is the magic going back to the viking period so for example when we see the theosophists in stockholm and, and hilma of clint is, is 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 one of the the best examples she's she's in an older tradition the older tradition that i see goes back to uh, the viking times there were these figures the sorceresses they were called the vulva. There's no other way to pronounce it. It's not a reference to female anatomy. It's an older word associated with the staff that these sorceresses uh, carried. It's not related to vulva, which is related to, to turn and the Latin. Uh, so these figures were sorceresses. And according to the Norse uh, records and Icelandic records, uh, they were... And also, according to archaeologists and to the material evidence which has manifested itself in various graves across across uh, these countries, uh, they were women who were professional seers, who could remote travel, who could engage in shape-shifting, who could predict the future. And they were held in high esteem and they would sit in a chair. They had a staff. They often dressed strangely in cat skin and various figures. So it's certainly a precursor of the witch. And that word seems to be of Nordic origin as well. But they had a lot of respect and they were they were feared. Uh, and in the burials that have been excavated by 
uh, archaeologists in contemporary times, they find these, these like a crozier, a, a wand, a staff that the, these women used. The men had uh, swords buried with them. Uh, and it was seen to be unmanly to engage with the spirit world. So I know we have the chalice and the blade, but the division seemed to be that the men with the swords were dealing with the material world and that the women with their staffs were dealing with the spiritual world. So there was a division of function of people like Cam Camilla Paglia has talked about. Uh, it was important. So from the Viking period, of course, we get the great mystic uh, of the Middle Ages, uh, St. Brigitta in the 1300s. So St. Brigitta is a woman who, who was known all around the, the Christian world, uh, St. Bridget, if you like, a, a Bridget following on from the Irish Bridget, the Christian saint and the pagan figure. So it's a kind of, she's an archetypal figure across Europe, not just in the Celtic world. And uh, Brigitta was one of the richest or one of the richest women in Sweden at a certain time. She had eight children. Uh, she took a vow of chastity after that when her husband was still alive and then he died. And after he died, she had mystical experience. She had visitations, the same as Swedenborg. Uh, now, if you look at some of the descriptions, uh, not that long ago uh, of, by, by critics, if you like, by, by a more scientific materialist, uh, people disposition they're very very critical of this idea that she she had genuine mystical experiences and that they say oh well she was suffering from repressed sexuality because her husband died and awful 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 things but uh, uh, people are a bit more familiar with mystical experience so she sets up her order of nuns that are very influential she had traveled to santiago de compostela uh, she later went to uh, the Holy Land, she went to Jerusalem, she went to Bethlehem. When in Bethlehem in 1371, I think, sh she had a vision of the Nativity and she described what she saw. And when she came back to Italy, because she moved to Rome, when she came back to Rome, she described that uh, vision and she was very well known. And that vision was utilized by artists during the Renaissance. I think Niccolo uh, Tommaso uh, um, used it and other artists use it to describe the nativity so it's very familiar to us that kind of picture of the nativity scene it came from saint begita she had visions all through her life she was uh she intervened in politics she believed the church had to be reformed she had advice for the the pope and for everybody she was a very very significant figure the first if you like female writer she's regarded as in uh, Swedish terms, but, but a, a very, very significant mystic. So in some ways, this tradition is there going up to the Theosophists, and it was taken up, the Theosophists, like Hilma of Clint, but not just Hilma of Clint. There was, there was the, the, the other women at, at the time that were engaged in the seances, but we have other artists like Lucy Larga Bielka, who is not so well known, and uh, Tira Klein is another one at the same time. So there are many women uh, involved in theosophy and the other activities. And in the stream of Freemason, according to the, the books I've read on Freemasonry in, in Sweden, there are, uh, there are certain organizations which allowed women to join. So it wasn't exclusively male preoccupation. And I believe there's a crossover from the Freemasonic explorations into 
some of these other uh, activities uh, and probably more than people think. There are books that, I, that I've read, they're not available in English, about this is about the, the, the Brotherhood of Secrets. There's another recent one about the turn of the, se the century in Sweden and, and the various esoteric forces that, that were in operation. So there is a story there to be told uh, in relation to what was going on in Sweden and what was distinctive about it and also how it was influenced. And in the, the theosophical point, Hilma of Klint, um, as theosophy uh, began to, to 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 break up in its current in its organizational structure she was interested in steiner's movement and anthroposophy and she she got to know steiner and steiner came to see a particular series of paintings that she had done called the temple paintings when she was told by one of the higher masters that he wanted her to do these paintings she did 193 paintings uh, in this series from 1906 to 1915, amazing big paintings, which when ex exhibited at the Guggenheim a few years ago, was the biggest attended exhibition ever. Now, she told her family not to exhibit these paintings till 20 years after her death. Steiner said that he, they shouldn't be exhibited until 50 years after her death. Now, there's an interesting discussion about what was going on there. She only came back into public consciousness after an exhibition in 1986 in Los Angeles. But Steiner wasn't too keen on them, it seems, or he was a bit apprehensive. It's a bit difficult to work out what his, his reaction was. But both Steiner and Blavatsky didn't believe that you should give over your body to a higher force in order to paint or to, to receive such higher knowledge. So Blavatsky was very, very cautious about that, and so was Steiner. And according to the descriptions of Hilma of Klint, and initially, particularly with the early paintings, she wasn't painting them herself. There was a force moving through her, and Steiner didn't like that. Uh, and they were doing it in a very Christian context. They were doing it in a context of uh, being guided by Jesus as well. They were very, 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 very uh, cosmopolitan sense which is also consistent with the great mystic artist Georgiana Helton who did a great series of paintings in the uh, 60s 1860s in London and she uh, she's a fairly unknown artist she went into she w fell into abeyance and forgotten about but she was doing paintings like this which look like the cosmic art you've been discussing in some of your in one of your recent talks she did this in uh, 1864 so there were a number of women artists who have been forgotten about or ignored now the question is whether they just ignored because there are women that's that's one view but i think that is certainly there but they were also ignored because they were dealing with the mystical world and today there are many art or some art critics who say well Hilma of Dint is not an artist or not a great artist she's a mystic as if they're different so there's a very, very interesting debate about that. You're suggesting that these forms of abstract, not representational art, abstract art, that emerged out of Sweden had deep esoteric roots. Years ago when I said I'm going to concentrate on painting, I, I did a survey of as much art around the world as I could, and I tried to look again at all the art I could. And I remember looking at Hilma of Klint, and I presumed at the time it was a type of abstract, decorative, illustrative work. And then a few years ago, 
I began to look at our notebooks and I began to see an incredibly complex, evolved individual who was who was a, a leader in, in the sense of spiritual evolution. And then I began to see that the people who were commenting both on our notebooks and on our paintings were not so much into the mystical context. Because if you come from a, a materialist ideology, and especially to art, you're going to see certain things and maybe not want to see the mystical things or not be familiar with the language and vocabulary. So I think it, it, it requires that one is a bit open. And of course, the big influence on, on in, he, in this uh, stream is Annie Besant. And Annie Besant, who had done in 1901 with Ledbetter, the book on uh, thought forms and the representation of thought forms, which was building on Blavatsky's work about trying to see inside because of course at this period we have the uh, we have crooks and we have the x-rays and the idea of seeing into things and Hilma of Clint was a uh, she had illustrated scientific journals so she was very au fait with that world and they realized they were trying they were trying to see into things but they were they believed that science and the mystical world could go together. But I don't think a lot of scientists believe that it could go together. So this goes back to the Swedenborgian versus uh, Linnaeus uh, tradition. Uh, and in, in that sense, the uh, if you look at Clint, I, I think, or Blarga Bielke, uh, or Georgiana Houghton, I think in some way they're trying to represent the language of the higher dimensions. Now, for people that don't believe in the higher dimension, that don't believe in the spiritual world, that don't believe that they are spirits, they will find that nonsense. But it's not abstract in that sense. They are talking in a different language. They're talking in about a different dimension. They're talking about things that are not two-dimensional, that are different forces. And there are, talk there are certain symbols that recur. The eight-figure, the, 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 the colors of the spectrum, uh, the spiral is critical. And in some sense, she, she, Hilma of Clint did her spirals. And, and if you look at the structure of the Guggenheim, we have a spiral form, which is probably anticipated in some sense, as you could argue, by her. And the Guggenheim itself, and the and Guggenheim, the, the founder, was influenced by theos, certain theosophical artists. There was a, a an artist in the early part of the 20th century who advised uh, Guggenheim, so they were quite receptive to this uh, view of spiritual art. So it's not abstract in the sense of how that is understood in the academy, because the academy uh, as well, at certain stages become ideological, or there is a certain discourse which talks about mark-making, and everything is mark-making. Mark-making for me is what my kids used to do when they were small on the wall. That's mark-making. But... Uh, at this context where they're saying that they're creating a different they're representing a higher dimension and when you look at the paintings and you understand that you can't produce as an artist i understand you can't produce that consistent volume of of work without having a very strong driving force behind you and when that driving force is consistent with a lot of spiritual traditions or someone who is au fait with some of these symbols can begin to see what's going on you you realize that we're talking about a higher dimension and 
although Stein and Blavatsky were concerned, if you look in Christian terms, you know, by your fruits shall you know them, there's absolutely nothing in the, in, in the work that's destructive, that could be construed as being evil, that could be construed as being negative. They're all elevating, and the work speaks for itself. So it is very, very interesting that these artists are being rediscovered. And my belief is that there are many more artists out there and also, even in the even in the royal family, there are some pictures which have been attributed to uh, certain members of the royal family, which to me look very, very uh, important in relation to their esoteric content. But they may have been kept out or not seen to be art because they were dealing with symbolism that was esoteric, perhaps associated with the Freemasons or, or the Rosicrucians. Uh, and Rosicrucianism was a very strong influence on, on on these uh, women as well. Before we conclude our interview, I think it's important to mention that some very important parapsychology work is coming out of Sweden. I often refer viewers to a paper written by Etzel Cardenia that was published in the August 2018 issue of the American Psychologist, the flagship journal of the American Psychological Association. It's a landmark paper, in my opinion, summarizing meta-analyses covering some 1,400 different experiments in parapsychology and including that uh, methodology was good, the statistics are incredibly strong, and as the research becomes more and more rigorous, the results do not decline. And of course, Etzel Cardenia uh, was working at the University of Lund in Sweden. And you have interviewed him in, uh, on your show, uh, I, I, I recall. Yes, and also he has been a a leading light as far as I, c I can see and he has defended at times the uh, the effort of parapsychology against people who uh, perhaps had a, a hair trigger reaction to it or were a bit cautious from a more scientific materialist perspective so that battle is still going on everywhere but he seems to have done very well in his representation of his arguments and I certainly haven't heard any adverse things uh, beyond that so but there was a bit of a, a media tiff a few years ago but that's that's consistent with the historical example because uh, if we go back to the 1790s when the mesmerism came for example we had critics and we had a range of views but the same with conjuring you had the the king investigating uh, the conjuring experiment and then you had people for example hiding the hiding in a churchyard to see, to expose what was going on. So, uh, to a certain extent, the, the, that openness or pragmatism, uh, I, I think, uh, is is still there. Uh, but if you look at a lot of the great figures in in Swedish liter literature, for example, another figure that we should mention is Selma Lagerlöf, which I think is the she was the first woman to win the Nobel Prize for literature. And a vast body body of of work, and she engaged in top in topics like the idea of the Antichrist. She wrote the miracles of the Antichrist. It's it's described as in English and other books about children's books and books that referred to trolls and other figures and mythical figures in, in a Swedish context. So that folk magic was always there. There were also 
black arts books that were popular with people. For example, there has been a controversy about runes recently, that some politicians want to ban runes or certain runes because they associate it with the far right, which seems a, 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 seems incredible in many senses to, to, to go after the, the thing itself. But the, uh, the runes were used in certain parts of Sweden up until the 20th century, uh, which, is, which, which is quite amazing. So, so that folk thing is there. You have that very pragmatic scientific uh, domain as well, and certainly Lund and uh, are, are open to that, and, and uh, Edsel has, has, has done, is doing good work there, and there are other associations that promote, not, not many, but, but, but are, are a bit open. But to a certain extent, they may be struggling against the tide because Sweden is a very scientifically disposed uh, uh, country, it's, it's done well, and the farmers, AstraZeneca is down the road, not far from here, Astra, it was the Swedish arm, again, following on from the chemical background, they're, they're very into that worldview, which is, is materialistic, as far as, as, as I can see, uh, but they're not that intolerant that they won't, they won't allow those spaces for people to explore the, uh, the other dimensions, but they're, I am concerned as a general proposition in all these things that we don't ignore the various streams. If people believe, for example, they've left Christianity behind, it's a big mistake to begin to write it out of the, of the past. It's a big, big mistake to ignore the contributions because, for example, they were Christians, although they're, you know, the, the country doesn't see itself in those terms anymore because they want to be uh, modern. It's a big mistake to, forget their their history to, to to not remember what 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 what's going on and uh, i think uh, and for example swedish prehistory is very very interesting but it seems to go against the grain of the contemporary if you like dominant left wing social social democratic disposition to to emphasize any of these things supposedly because it might support the far right in some sense who want to use old ideas of Wotan or Odin or whatever and linked with some idea of Nordic culture and and essentially different people. Now, I don't believe that that's the, tr the true reason. I believe there's a general problem associated with both left and corporatist right uh, who are mit heavily materialist and that want to in general, not just in Sweden, but it's, it's clear here, to cut off the connections with the past because it doesn't fit in to the modern narrative about science and the importance of science and everything being scientific and everything being empirical and anything that can't be tested or represented should be ignored. So I think there's a deeper thing there and there's a, a big danger. And uh, I, I'm, I'm a bit concerned that the failure to learn from the past uh, obscures obscures what we need to learn for the future and there's a bit of a, a taking away from the blackboard of memory in that context which which I find a bit uh, a bit disturbing not just in Sweden but across the western world as if everything in the past is some way essentialist and is therefore against the modern you know narrative of of global development uh, and, and a, a kind of idea that there should be some monoculture and the, the past is bad and connection with the past is necessarily represents a particular ideology i think that's 
very, very mistaken. We have to draw on our past. And as you said, as you've often said, that the culture belongs to everybody in that sense. They can draw on it. I've drawn on the Swedish culture, on the ancient culture. I'm drawn as, a, as an immigrant in that context. I appreciate what has happened. I want to learn about the past. I think there's something to contribute there. I think we can learn lessons from what has happened to you know, Linnaeus afterwards or, or how his view has come down through Darwin, through Huxley, to, to, to Julian Huxley into transhumanism. I mean, it's, it, it's an interesting pattern. You have to follow the, the chain links uh, backwards to understand the path. It strikes me, James, that you're expressing a kind of sympathy to the idea that earlier you attributed to August Strindberg that when one becomes disconnected from higher consciousness or Christ consciousness, that one risks opening up to dark forces. I think that that's correct. And also, uh, Swedenborg was very, very clear that although he, he examined the brain and he tried to examine consciousness, and he made predictions which are in contemporary times are seen to be accurate about how the nervous system worked, and he studied it, he came to a point even before his mystical experience, which said that you cannot explain everything by material means. You cannot, within the boundaries of physiology, explain higher forces. And in particular, his idea was about influx and the idea that forces come into us. And this is, this is in all esoteric traditions. And when we talked about light before, this is... Uh, the the third dimension where the person opens up to a higher experience I and mean, you get the influx if you like so he, he he was he was very very clear after studying all the great literature available to him uh, regarded he's what he regarded as one of the greatest minds ever to exist he was very very clear that the material cannot explain everything and that it was a mistake uh, to believe that so he was, he, he's a great representative of this spiritual dimension. But they go together. He wasn't rejecting science. And this is the important thing. They're complementary. But for many scientists, or rather people who are into scientism, they see it as a zero-sum game. They see that it's like a, a Christian in the lion's den. One of them, there's only one of them who's only going to survive. And... Uh, it's a big mistake, and I'm concerned about that in the context of, uh, now, you were talking, you had a, a great talk uh, with Mitch Horowitz uh, during the week, and I, 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 always, I found that the talk you've done very, very interesting. Although, when you talk about conspiracy, I, I, I think that I have a bit of a problem, because H.G. Uh, Wells talked about the open conspiracy. It was H.G. Wells who said that there was an open conspiracy, and there should be. And he was arguing in favor of the scientocracy in, in the New World Order. And, of course, in, in legislation you have conspiracies. The government uses the idea of conspiracy when they want to prosecute someone like Charles Manson, for example. So conspiracies exist in law, and they exist in relation to, as we've seen with Gustav and that. So, um, but the idea of the movement towards a purely scientific global regime, for example, is one that, that concerns me. And not because of science, but because the idea that science can be elevated to an all-embracing viewpoint. And in the, year, in the year to come, we're going to see a greater movement towards, towards that, 
that what is an ideal for some people, it's not an ideal for me, because I think we need balance. We need to have science. We need to have psychology and parapsychology and other force and art and spirituality has to be there. Without spirit, we're, we're, we're condemned uh, to repeat the past, the failures of the past. And again, uh, I, I hear the kids and the kids tell me from school, they learn about all the wars were caused by religion. And it's, it's just not true, for example. I mean, if you look at Stephen Pinker's book on the better angels of our nature, and you look at the charting of the greatest loss of, of humans in, in wars, religious wars are only a part of that, a very, very small part of it. Uh, so you have these ideas that are, are, are being allowed to triumph, and we're moving, we've moved this year far down the road towards being ruled by scientism, uh, that it concerns me, and we're going to have more because the bill has the current crisis. The bill hasn't come yet. The bill will come this year, and uh, I think people will begin to realize that their opportunity for maneuver is is reduced. Yeah. Well, James, once again, an incredibly stimulating conversation. Thank you so very much. And of course, I'm pleased to let our viewers know that we are planning even more. So. Thank you for being with me, James. Thank you, and thank you for for listening to me. And I hope I didn't go on too long too long on some of those. Uh, apologize if I have done, but it's always always great to talk to you, uh, and I really appreciate the the conversation. Thank you. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us.